State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Carol Cooper, Chief Marketing Officer at Live Intent, about 2021 email monetization trends in review so far. Live Intent is the only programmatic advertising platform that connects brands with readers in the consent-based environment of email. Let's begin. Hi, Carol. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? It's not too bad. We've had Carol on our podcast. It's almost been two years. Like it's time's flown by. Um, there's a lot been happening as well. So it's good to reconnect with you. How's everything going, and including with your latest promotion in Live Intent? Yeah, I mean, on the business front, things are going well. We continue to grow as a business, which I think is uh, obviously super important. And, you know, I know our topic today is going to be around newsletter growth. And I think that's obviously one of the reasons why our business has seen some growth. And I think what's important there is that as we grow, that means that we're able to help our customers make more money and also sell more product through email newsletters. And, you know, for me personally, yes, like you mentioned, I was promoted to CMO at Live Intent at the beginning of the year and really enjoying leading the marketing team. I, I work with a, a fabulous group of folks within our, our team and, and across the company. And so uh, from that perspective, it's been a good and, and fun year. Nice. Glad to see that progression as well. And you're doing a lot of stuff, making a lot of moves. So I've always keep tabs of you as well on LinkedIn. So that's really awesome. Let's just jump straight into our conversation because there's a lot to uncover. I mean, from our end, we're monitoring a lot of the new revenue opportunities. We recently republished our digital publishing trend space as well. And one of the things that you know has been very prominent this year is around the fact that publishers are using e-commerce as a monetization like product and offering. And there's also been a lot of publishers also trying to monetize their own audiences based on you know what's happening with third-party cookie demise and, and everything else around that. For those people who have been under the rock this past year or so, where do you think we can start in getting them up to speed from your point of view? Yeah, I think you're right. Going to your point about e-commerce, right? I think over the last 17 months, as people have been working from home or, or working virtually, uh, we've seen uh, the growth in e-commerce accelerate. And I think that's just, you know, people buying things online and having them shipped to their location. So I think a lot of uh, e-coms companies or people that are, are selling, obviously, products online uh, have, have benefited from that. And I think what's also been a benefit to the organizations as well as your traditional news publishers has been the growth of their email program, right? Again, I think as people, we saw this trend prior to the pandemic, actually. I mean, people were spending more than four, five hours a day in their inbox, right? Whether that be personal or that be work. And I think uh, during the pandemic, uh, that has certainly accelerated, right? As, as people are, one, looking for trusted sources of news and information, and two, doing that shopping. And so there's definitely been a big boom there. I think everyone sort of sometimes looks at New York Times as the, the leading example of everything in the trends as well, because A, you know, last month they announced that not only they're going to be creating one new newsletter product, but they're creating 18, which is like massive. And the other thing as well is the fact that they've actually made Wirecutter completely under the subscription paywall. For a lot of those publishers, like who are like just gobsmacked and saying, what the hell is going on? Like, why do you think they've come to that point that they can command so much and do that so aggressively and so dominantly? 
I think it comes down to two things. One, the New York Times is providing products and services that they know their customers want. They're not just producing new newsletters and building a, a newsletter strategy for the sake of doing it. That's where their audience is and that's where their readers are. A lot of their readers are starting their days by you know waking up in the morning and opening up the New York Times as a, a newsletter, right? I think that is really where the investment comes in newsletters. And, and let's remember, I mean, the New York Times, they said years ago that they were going to push on a very aggressive subscriber growth strategy. And clearly newsletters is a key piece of that subscriber growth strategy. And so I think that you just are continuing to see companies like the New York Times evolve their strategy with newsletters being core to it, because it is a great place to have that sort of direct connection with your consumer. It is a great place to, like I said, provide the content and the products and the services that consumers are asking for. You know, people are waking up in the morning and the first thing they're doing is checking their emails. I love to say how newsletters has really replaced the newspaper and the magazine in many ways, right? So years ago, you know, people would wake up in the morning and walk out to their front step and pick up the newspaper off of their front step. That Those days are long gone. Now people are waking up in the morning and picking up their phone and opening up their inbox. And so the New York Times and others want to be where their consumers are. And so I think it's a really great strategy. And then long term, I mean, think of it from this perspective, right? It's a great way to build up your first party data set and your first party data strategy, right? By one, collecting uh, email addresses and additional information from your subscribers. Two, if people are highly engaged in your content, they're going to subscribe to your newsletter. So you have a better understanding of what your consumers are interested in and their intent and their actions. And that's a great way to sort of build up your own first party data uh, set and first party data strategy. So you've also quoted saying like newsletters created a trusted relationship between the publisher and its readers. Like what stage do you think that other publishers can say, okay, I've got a fairly trusted relationship with my readers and now I can double down on newsletter products and monetizing more? What stage do you think they have to be at to sort of think the same way as New York Times would? That's a great question. I think it will vary for every publisher. And I think you have to sort of check the pulse of your subscribers and see what their appetite is for signing up for more content, uh, upselling them into paid products, so on and so forth. I know the Washington Post just came out with a new morning uh, newsletter as well, too. I think it's called The Sevens, where it's sort of short bits of information every morning that they're offering, right? And so you see a lot of publishers right now tinkering a little bit with their strategy, figuring out what works, long form uh, newsletters, uh, short form content, uh, content that's written by uh, specific personalities as well too. And, and I think all of this is really the, the sort of evolution of email newsletters and the importance of it. You know, last year we ran a survey to our publishers and got back some really interesting data points. One was that 53% of publishers said that they were experiencing an increase in engagement with their email newsletters. Mm -hmm. Another great point was 71% of publishers said they're focusing on retaining subscribers with curated email newsletters. Right. And I think what you're seeing now is sort of publishers really acting on that. They know that people want more content in their inbox. They know that people are engaging with it and they're they're trying to figure out how they can create more unique types of newsletters, more unique types of content 
to get their readers to stay engaged with their brand, right? And that's part of the goal here, right? Is to offer uh, as many quality products as you can to get people to spend more of their time with you, right? Everyone has 24 hours in a day. And so all these publishers and brands are fighting for that attention. I think to touch on that, there's the other meta trend we see. We've also covered it in our publisher trends piece in the fact that, you know, the content creator economy has come to age, basically. So, you know, a lot of them are now holding a lot of bargaining power with publishers or they're becoming publishers themselves or that, you know, there's the different classifications that are there between the content creators and seeing very much like high profile journalists also moving to Substack and starting to create their own audiences like that. I've also looking at the access report as, as we're speaking now as well, like out of the 18 newsletters, I can see eight of them are actually opinion driven from their opinion columnists. So where do you think that's also playing out in generally? And what do you guys advise with your current publishers on that aspect as well in having that personality or that content creator internally that can be a champion to drive more products and, and more really relationships? I think you touched on an interesting point there, right? Because you see companies like whether it's Substack or Twitter or Facebook, they're all sort of getting into the email game, the newsletter game. And I think, uh, again, it comes down to you want to be where your audience is, right? And we are certainly seeing it trending that consumers are signing up for more and more uh, newsletters. I think for some of these companies, right, it is a great way to connect readers to the creators, right? Like you said. Said. And I think, again, because consumers are hungry for that content, and again, it, it is for, you know, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the, the Substacks of the world, it is a way for them to get people to spend more time with the platform. I think one of the things where, where we, and I was just actually talking about this on another webinar, mm-hmm. one of the areas where we uh, sort of advise companies, right, you know, publishers, they create content for a living. That's what they do. I, I don't think they need our advice uh, on that or, or anyone else's advice. But one of the the trends that we've seen over the last couple of years is we're seeing brands start to do this more and more, right? Direct-to-consumer brands creating content, investing in uh, content that is complementary to the products that they're offering, right? And I think they're taking a page from publishers. They're taking a page from bigger brands. Think of the Home Depot for an example, right? They create content on uh, around do-it-yourself, right? And that's very complementary to the Home Depot brand and the products and services that they sell. So if there's one piece of advice that we give there, it's think about how you can take a page out of the publisher playbook if you are a brand or a marketer and uh, create content that is complementary to your product set where you can get your consumer, your people that buy your products to spend more time with your brand. Because if you can do that, then that creates that sort of trusted relationship. You're able to then potentially upsell uh, that customer into more products. And as you build up your own newsletter subscriber database, then that opens up the opportunity for you to then monetize your newsletters as well too. Publishers themselves have to now also compete with people like who are having more of an influence and an online presence themselves. How can they balance that whilst keeping brand integrity and how can they develop that internally as well to to create more unique products? That's a good question. And I think you'll start to see that. I think you'll start to see uh, some of the bigger, more traditional publishers start to branch out into that. I mean, I I think that they can do it. If, If they want to bring in personalities to write their own newsletters, they can do one of two things. They can either bring in uh, news personalities that can write content that 
is complementary to their current brand, or they can create a whole another sort of separate standalone product that is, you know, these sort of opinion pieces, which they do today, these um, sort of media pieces, so on and so forth. So I, I think there is a way for them to do that. And I think you uh, are seeing more and more additional publishers do that. I hope that answers your question. Just going back to the overall landscape, like you said, I think it's important to note again, like there's a lot of the platforms are chasing audiences and eyeballs. So we've seen as well the likes of Substack going after and trying to create themed newsletters, or they're even trying to get many of the Marvel type newsletters created just due to the meta trends that are out there. What are your thoughts around that? And like, are they sort of taking a, a note from Netflix in trying to create their own inventory or like, what, what do you think is the best way of explaining what's going on there? You know, again, I, I think it does come back to, they see an opportunity because people are definitely interested in uh, signing up for more newsletters now than, than ever before. Uh, they see an opportunity to connect uh, readers to uh, creators to uh, journalists uh, who they follow. I think from the flip side of that, these creators and, and journalists also see an opportunity to go to a platform where they can grow their own personal brand. I mean, a lot of these folks already have their own following uh, that they're bringing to the table. And so I think it, it is really, um, at least from my perspective, uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of the details of the deals, but it seems seems like a win-win for someone like a Substack and the creator. That's what we're seeing as well. As a result, there's more people, platforms are creating more tools to support them and monetize as well and everything else around that. Where are you seeing video play into this as well? Because obviously there's been like, I think there was even the past week of, as of this recording, we've seen sort of TikTok sort of take over in terms of engagement more than YouTube. And, um, you know, there's still a big channel with YouTube monetization. Like, how's that? playing out with some of your clients at Live Intent and using that in newsletters? I think playing video actually in the newsletter is still a challenge. Remember, newsletter platforms don't have uh, JavaScript, right? A lot of that is, is stripped out. And so the ability to actually play a video in the newsletter is still a big challenge. I think what a lot of folks do is probably put an image in the newsletter, which then clicks out uh, elsewhere. But yeah, in terms of video, that's another platform that I think continues to grow in many ways, whether it be TikTok, whether it be Instagram stories, whether it be Snapchat or YouTube, a lot of those platforms have figured out a way to get people to spend more and more time on the platform consuming video content, just like uh, a lot of publishers have figured out ways to, to get their readers to spend more time in email. In terms of creating first-party data and products, what do you think the path to get to that sooner is? Do you think it's quicker to leverage off a platform like Substack or, or those platforms that can help you get leveraged rented audiences or should publishers be gunning to do that directly or does that depend on what stage they're at with their business? I think it does depend on what stage that they're at with their business. I, I would say the more publishers can own their newsletter program, I think the better off it is for them. Because if you think of it this way, uh, a publisher that has a really substantial email newsletter program really in many ways has built their own a mini walled garden, if you will, right? Because if you think of it this way, it's people that have, have signed up or opted in for the content. It's 100% logged in. 
your email subscribers are usually publishers most highly engaged audience, right? So from that perspective, you've got a highly engaged audience in an opt-in logged in environment, right? And so from that perspective, you're able to really, like I said before, understand who your users are, the types of content they like, track that engagement. And that just opens up the opportunity for you to then sell that inventory because those are the places that advertisers want to be. They want to be in an environment where people are, are highly engaged and their ads are going to perform really well. So just to go back to a little bit of what we spoke about e-commerce as well, I think that one of the things that I was just actually stumbled upon that interests me is the fact that you guys are talking about with the e-commerce trend, the fact that publishers are creating retail media networks. What are you seeing that with live event customers at the moment on that and how are they building that to sort of bridge that gap to creating first party data? Yeah, and I, I think it, it comes down to the trend that we've seen in e-commerce accelerated over the last 18 months or so, right? And companies realizing that they are sitting on massive amounts of first party data uh, that they're getting from uh, all these transactions that are and engagements that are occurring on their sites and in their newsletters. And so what we're seeing now is uh, these brands really start to package up their audience data, their first party data in, in a way that, again, provides another revenue stream for them in terms of monetization of their website, monetization of their email newsletters, and monetization of their data. And I think that's going to be a trend that we continue to see from these uh, big e-commerce brands. Does that translate them to them creating their own programmatic teams in-house or like at network teams in-house? Or what do you think that's going to happen? Or do you think that they'll still be able to lean on partners like Live Intent and other ad network companies to help them monetize? I think you may see a little of both, right? I think you may see some companies try to, to bring things in-house, but then you'll see others that will want to lean on their partners a bit more. Remember, programmatic selling ads, that's not why these companies got into business, right? They got into business to uh, sell their, their products and services, right? And that's where their core competency lies, right? And so I think for those companies thinking of it that way, yeah, they will leverage companies like Live Intent for our expertise to help them understand how they go about maximizing the true value of their email newsletters, how they go about maximizing the true value of their subscriber and first party audience. Let's uh, deviate a little bit with some other stuff that we spoke about earlier before we started this and, and some other aspects of you know email monetization. There's the aspect of, you know, multicultural marketing. Everyone doesn't know. Obviously, Carol, you have your own podcast with Eric and you guys talk about many of those topics on there. And obviously, it's been a bit crazy in the US with what's going on as well, what's happened. How do you think the state of play in that, I guess, without going politically, how do you think that's sort of changed and what do publishers need to be more sensitive of or what do you think they have to be more across sort of tailored to that type of segmentation? with their email and audience? Obviously, the last year and a half has been unlike any last year and a half uh, ever uh, in many different ways uh, across the world. But yes, especially here too in the U.S., 
And I think one of the things that's risen to the top within marketing, within ad tech and, and martech is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and opening up the door for a lot of companies to have conversations on many different topics from their hiring practices to uh, their retention uh, practices to the types of partners they work with. And yes, the marketing campaigns that they do. And I think uh, some companies have made uh, some good strides. I think though, as an industry, we still have uh, a very long way to go, but you are seeing agencies, tech partners, uh, supply partners really start to think about offering up multicultural audiences if you will, and helping out businesses that have uh, diverse founders as well, too. So I think that that is a, a very positive trend. And I think you'll see that uh, sort of weaved into ad tech and marketing a lot more as, as we move forward. What do you think? What can publishers change? Like, let's say tomorrow, like we've got a clean, so what can they change tomorrow to make that better moving forward? I think one of the things that maybe publishers can look at is the types of audiences they are offering up. And if there are uh, cultural segments that they can offer to specific bases, different types of audience, right? Whether that be a Black audience or a Latin audience, there are other sort of audience segments that you can do. You're seeing companies out there. And the reason why I say that is because you're seeing bigger companies out there pledging that they are going to um, spend X amount of dollars with businesses that can offer up those types of audience segmentations or, or spend dollars with businesses that are founded, like I said, by a, a diverse set of people. And so the dollars are there that companies want to spend. And I think if I'm a publisher, I'm thinking about how do I go about capturing those dollars in a responsible and respectable way? Definitely. Um, and I appreciate you championing all that as well. Like, I'm seeing a lot of content and a lot of things that you're doing as well. So I appreciate the, the efforts you're championing on that as well. So, you know, we've talked about quite a number of touch points, a lot of things, not randomly, but obviously we want to cover the past, the, you know, content, the top level context. What's exciting you at the moment, Carol? Like, what are you sort of day to day thinking about with your team and what sort of the things that you're thinking about in the next 18 months? We recently have uh, rolled out some new products at Live Intent. I think that the main one right now is native and offering a native ad solution yeah. uh, in our email newsletters, which I think is uh, a great complement to the standard display ads that we've also offered. Uh, it's a great way for publishers to diversify the inventory that they offer and diversify some of the revenue in the inbox. And I think from a marketer perspective, it gives them another high-performing unit that they can can run in email newsletters. And so we're doing a lot of marketing around our, our native product and the benefits of that. So that is to me, super exciting. And then, you know, I think we are obviously about to enter Q4 uh, pretty soon here. And so what that means is for us starting to plan for next year. And so excited really to see how email newsletters continue to evolve and how publishers think about email newsletters and the strategy around it. And not just from a monetization perspective, but from a content perspective. And as we talked about in this episode, the strategies and the types of products that publishers will offer via email newsletters, I think is super interesting to watch and be a part of. And, and so I'm excited about that and how our company continues to grow as we support our publishers and brands. Does native 
complement a lot of the e-commerce trends that we spoke about? Like, do you think that new web publishers are going to make brand partnerships a lot more seamless? Absolutely. I think it's a great unit that obviously flows well with the content and layout of your email newsletters. It gives you a level of versatility to uh, create units that have an image plus text as well too. And I think it's really a great complement to, like you said, the units that we've offered up until this point. It's been something that our customers have asked for and, and I'm excited that we are able to deliver on it and are really seeing some good early success with it. Will native become the new affiliate or do you think that's separate initiatives? I think it's separate. I think what we've seen and I think what we will continue to see is publishers figure out uh, what is that right mix between uh, display ads and native ads within their email template? And again, every publisher is different. Every email newsletter is different depending on the design, the layout, the length of the newsletter. And so we, we do spend a lot of time with our publishers talking to them about the placement of the different units within their templates and to get that right sort of optimal mix, right? Because again, you remember consumers are opening newsletters for content for editorial content, not for ads. So we don't want the ads to sort of overshadow the content in any way, shape or form. We want the ads to be complementary to the content and making sure that the overall experience for the consumer who's opening those newsletters is spot on. Any other behind the scenes stuff you can share with what Live Intense is doing? Do you have anything that you have planned that you could potentially share us that potentially can excite our audience or publishers in the market? I think, you know, like I said, I think Native is the big one. We continue to have conversations behind the scenes with all of our publishers uh, about their first-party data strategy and what the, the world will look like next year. From that perspective, obviously, Google pushed back uh, their announcement, that, but that doesn't mean that publishers should take their foot off the, the gas or brands should take their foot off the gas. So we should all be still working hard to make sure that uh, there's a holistic first-party strategy set in place for all publishers and brands. And we, we certainly play a role in that. So I think that that's where some of the conversations behind the scenes have, have been happening. Nice. I look forward to maybe having another conversation in, in the next year to talk about some of those case studies and more trends as well. Just to close off our conversation, do you have any final thoughts or advice for publishers on just how to sort of end off the year on a more positive note? I think, again, Q4 right around the corner, and maybe by the time this episode is published, we will be in Q4. So obviously, publishers want to maximize their revenue and monetize their newsletters the best. And I would say for any publisher out there that's listening, that's a custom of ours, definitely make sure you're in contact with your account rep to make sure that you are set up and following uh, all of our best practices so that we can help you monetize your newsletters and grow your subscriber databases as best as, as you can. That girl, thanks for your time. I appreciate the chat. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing Podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.